The Lord be with you. Our reading from Matthew chapter 1 today quotes our reading from Isaiah chapter 7. I don't know if you noticed that. I've got them both here on the screen, but I want you to look very closely and see if you can notice one major difference between how Isaiah says this verse and how Matthew says this verse. Anyone see it? Yeah, right? Isaiah says, look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, whereas Matthew says, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you may say to yourself, well, that's a minor difference. But if I tell you, hey, I have a friend who's a young woman and she just gave birth, you'd say, oh, that's very nice. And if I say to you, I have a friend who's a virgin and she just gave birth, you'd say, what, really? Now, I want to say Matthew is not making stuff up here, right? There is uh, a tradition that Matthew has received between these two things, and it goes to a difference between the Hebrew version of Isaiah and the Greek translation of Isaiah. And I have on this next screen what's going on. So in Hebrew, right, as a reminder, Matthew is writing in Greek. Isaiah is writing in Hebrew, yeah? Okay. So, but, but Matthew's got to get a Greek translation of Isaiah for himself to read. Yeah? So in Hebrew, there is a word for young woman. It's almach. Okay? There is in Greek also a word for young woman. It is neonis. And in Hebrew, there is a word for virgin. Batula. And in Greek, there is a word for virgin. Parthenos. Has anyone heard of the Parthenon, the big building in Athens? Yeah. It's, it's called the Parthenon because it's dedicated to the goddess Athena, who was thought to be a virgin, and so it was Virgin Athena's house, so they called it the Parthenon. So, right, virgin in Greek is Parthenos. When Isaiah writes chapter 7, verse 14, the word Isaiah uses is alma. But when that word gets translated into Greek, the Greek that Matthew reads... The word is parthenos. And so it goes from a word that means a young woman to a word that means a virgin, radically transforming the meaning of this text, yes? So I was talking to my colleagues earlier this week about the difference between the two of them, and they said, are you going to talk about that in your sermon? And I said, well, yeah. And they said, well, that would be a mistake. And I said, well, why would it be a mistake? And they said, well, a mistake is anything you can't manage, and you can't manage how your congregation is going to react if you tell them there's a mistake in Matthew's translation of Isaiah, right? To say, anything you can't control, you need to close up, because who knows what kind of chaos is going to come out of it? Who knows what chaos will come out of your parishioners hearing this? Maybe they will lose their faith in the Bible. Maybe they will lose their faith in Christ. A prudent pastor sticks to the plan, and the plan is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Anything that gets in the way of that, you need to quietly dismiss. And obviously I haven't done that. Because I think our scriptures this Sunday are about what is a mistake and what is a miracle. You see, Joseph is confronted with something that he could very well consider a mistake, right? He discovers his wife or his fiancée, the woman to whom he's engaged, with whom he has not had sex, is pregnant. 
Sounds like someone had a mistake, yeah. And so he says to himself, well, you know, a mistake is anything I can't manage, and I clearly cannot manage this woman. I can't manage how my family is going to react when they find out I'm planning to marry her. And he says, it would be a, a something I should just close myself off to because I can't control it. He says, a good, prudent parent will stick to the plan, and my plan to be a parent is to marry a faithful wife, to raise kids that I know are my own kids, to be well-respected in my community, and Mary's throwing off this plan, so best that I dismiss her quietly. King Ahaz, in our reading from Isaiah, he's also got a choice to make. His choice is a little more complicated. It's the geopolitics of 700 years before Jesus. So I've got a map for you here. All right, here's what you need to know about King Ahaz's day. What we think of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. You can see them there at the bottom of the map. The northern kingdom is called Israel, but the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is is called Judah. Now, Ahaz is king of that southern kingdom of Judah. And you may notice, looking at this map, that both Judah and Israel are very small compared to two other kingdoms, the kingdoms of Syria and Assyria. Now, because Syria and Assyria are really close-sounding names, I'm going to refer to Syria by the name of its capital, which is Damascus, all right? And because Israel, we tend to think of as... Uh, you know, the United Kingdom of uh, Israel. I'm going to refer to Israel by the name of its capital, which is Samaria, okay? All right, so Judah and Samaria are super small in comparison to Damascus and, and Assyria. And Assyria right now is on the upswing. It's a growing superpower, and it's gobbling up all the other kingdoms around it. And if you look again at that map, let's leave that map up, if you look again at that map, you can see next on Assyria's chopping block is Damascus, and then Samaria, and then Judah. And so the kings in Damascus and the kings in Samaria are getting nervous, and they say, we need to form a coalition to fight off Assyria. And they go to, to the king Ahaz in Judah, and they say, Judah needs to team up with us. The three of us together stand a chance against Assyria. And Ahaz and Judah says, ah, the odds don't seem good to me. He says, you know what, i got a better plan. I'm going to team up with Assyria, and they're not going to see me as an equal, so I'm instead going to bow down to Assyria. I'm going to bend the knee to them. I'm going to become their vassal, and they'll protect me. And the kings in Damascus and Samaria say, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to join on our side no matter what, even if we have to invade you to force you to be on our team. And so, while everyone's worried about Assyria invading them, Damascus and Samaria decide to invade Judah. And this is where Ahaz has a choice. Because you see, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to Ahaz, don't worry about it. Just trust me. Trust me, and I will protect you from all your enemies. And Ahaz says, that would be a mistake because I can't manage that, right? And a mistake is anything you can't manage. I can't manage. Can you imagine me telling my army, don't worry about it, guys. God's got us covered. We're not going to do anything to prepare for this. No, Ahaz says, I can't imagine their reaction to that. Anything you can't control, you've got to close off 
lest chaos comes out of it. He says, a good prince sticks to the plan, and my plan is bow down to Assyria and become their vassal. And if God comes to me and says, I'll give you a sign, ask for you whatever you want, well then, Ahaz says, I'll just dismiss God quietly. That's the thing. We think a mistake is anything that we can't manage. But the truth is, we can't manage the Messiah, and so we end up closing ourselves off to Christ. But while we're worried about making mistakes, God is busy making miracles. And God starts off the first miracle in our scriptures today by saying to Ahaz, Look, I'll give you a sign, anything you want, so that you know you can trust me. Ask for a sign as high as heaven or as deep as the underworld. I'll give it to you. And Ahaz says, no, no, I'm sticking with my plan. You can go off quietly, God. And so Isaiah says, is it not enough that you weary mortals, Ahaz? You've got to weary God, too? God's going to give you a sign God's self. And this is the sign that God's going to give you. A young woman shall conceive... And bear a child, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And here's the thing. Ahaz has a wife, and she conceives, and she bears a child. They call him Hezekiah. And the prophecy says that by the time this child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the two kingdoms of whom Ahaz is in dread will be deserted, and that comes to pass. By the time Hezekiah is eight years old, Samaria and Damascus have been leveled by the Assyrians. They are gone. The people there have been carried off into captivity, just as God prophesied. But the story continues from that, because eventually Ahaz dies, and Hezekiah becomes king. And as king, Hezekiah devotes himself to encouraging Judah to return to the worship of the Lord, to putting their trust in God, so much so that Hezekiah eventually says, we bowed down once to Assyria, but no more. We shall be free and trust that God alone will be our Lord. Which you can imagine the king in Assyria was not a fan of. And so Assyria marches a major army down to Jerusalem and besieges the walls. And you've got to remember, right, Judah is this tiny kingdom, and Assyria now is the superpower in the region. And something wondrous happens. The army of Assyria leaves. And depending on who you ask, you get a different explanation. The Bible tells us the army of Assyria leaves because an angel of the Lord comes and strikes down all the soldiers, and so they have to pack up and go away. Now, the Assyrians don't tell it that way. We actually, they dug up earlier in the 20th century uh, an inscription where the Assyrians described all the cities they besieged and captured, a bunch of them in Israel and Judah, and on that list it's going down and it gets to Jerusalem and it names all the cities that it sieged and says, we sieged Jerusalem, and then it lists all the cities it captures, but it doesn't mention capturing Jerusalem, it just leaves that spot blank. doesn't give an explanation. The Greek historian Herodotus, a secular historian, he's not buying into any, any miracles that the Hebrew people claim. He says, you know, it must have been that they had this infestation of rats in their armies. And the rats came in and they brought plagues and that's what killed off all the Assyrians. And that's why the greatest power in the world at that time turned back from this little city and didn't conquer them. 
Maybe. Maybe that's the miracle. But I'm going to tell you that that is not the miracle in our scriptures today. And I'm also going to have you jump forward 400 years to about 300 years before Jesus. When at this point now the Greeks have conquered all the known world. And the Greeks, being a very well-educated people, they like to read books. And so they build a library in Alexandria, a city in Egypt. And they say, this will be the greatest library in the world. And so we want a copy of every single book in the world in our library. And they hear that there are Hebrew people who have a really good book. And they said, well, we would like a copy of it in our library. And the Hebrew people say, yeah, sure, here it is. And the Greeks look at it and they say, what is this barbarian language? We can't read any of this. And the Hebrew people say, well, it's in Hebrew. And the Greeks say, not in our library, it's not. They say, we need a translation of this into Greek. And the Hebrew people say, well, this is our sacred book. How can one person, you know, come up with a translation into another language? And the Greeks say, well, you should figure out a way. And so the Hebrew people, they get 70 rabbis, 70 different rabbis, and they put them all in separate rooms, and they say, you are to translate the entire Hebrew scriptures. And after months of their translations, these rabbis get together and they compare all their notes. And when they compare all their notes, they discover something miraculous has occurred. Every single translation is exactly the same. All 70. This Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures is called the Septuagint. There's a fun word to wrap your mouth around. Septuagint, it means 70, right? Because there were 70 rabbis. And sometimes you'll see it abbreviated by the Roman numerals for 70, LXX. And here's the thing. The Septuagint becomes the primary version of the scriptures that Jewish people will read for the next 400 years. When Matthew is writing his gospel and he looks to the Hebrew scriptures to see what prophecies Jesus are fulfilling, Matthew is reading the Septuagint. And do you know what word the Septuagint uses to describe who is going to give birth? Parthenos. Virgin. Every single other place. In the Septuagint, whenever Alma is used in Hebrew, they translate it as Neonis. But in Isaiah 7, one place and one place only, they translate Alma as Parthenos. They translate young woman as virgin. And I could tell you that perhaps the miracle today is that 70 rabbis agreed that Isaiah would say that a virgin is giving birth. But that is not the miracle today. Because 300 later, there is indeed a virgin who gives birth. Mary gives birth to Jesus. And in Luke's telling of the Christmas story, that is the miracle, right? An angel appears to Mary. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. Mary ponders this in her heart. But Matthew doesn't tell the story from Mary's perspective. Matthew tells the story from Joseph's perspective. Because the miracle for Matthew is not that a virgin gives birth, but that a man believes her. The miracle is that Joseph has a plan prepared for his whole life. A plan for a life that he can control. 
But suddenly the Holy Spirit shows up and opens him up. The miracle is that he is open to God's unexpected presence in his fiancée's unplanned pregnancy. The miracle is that instead of closing himself off to Christ, Joseph closes his mouth to things he can't explain and opens his heart to receive Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The miracle in the translation of the Septuagint isn't that 70 rabbis agreed on a translation, but that their translation prepared the world for Jesus. The miracle is that instead of sticking with a word whose meaning they could manage like Alma, the rabbis were open to the working of the Holy Spirit in the word Parthenos, which would give consequences they could never imagine. The miracle is that when the world looked at Matthew's use of Isaiah, instead of seeing a biblical mistake, their heart was open to a baby born in Bethlehem in whom they could see the Word made flesh. And the miracle 400 years before that is not that Jerusalem was protected from the attack of its enemies, but that it was protected from the mistake of its king Ahaz. The miracle is that when Ahaz said he would stick with his plan that he could control military alliances and armies, that God showed up in an unexpected way. Beyond Ahaz's knowledge or control, he showed up in an infant. The miracle is that when Ahaz was closed off to Christ, God showed up anyway as a baby, as Emmanuel, God with us. The difference between a mistake and a miracle, right? A mistake and a miracle are both things we don't expect. But a mistake closes us off to Christ. A miracle opens us to God's presence. The angel says to Joseph, you should call this child Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus means God is our salvation. And our sins... They aren't the mistakes that we've made. They aren't when life doesn't go according to plan. They aren't when we can't control all our outcomes. Our sin is thinking that what matters most in life is control instead of knowing that it is Christ. And so God shows up to us in a form of an infant, a form which has absolutely no control but possesses infinite possibilities. A newborn baby can't make mistakes, but it is always a miracle. That is Jesus. That is Christ for us. That is Emmanuel, God with us. And so as we prepare for Christmas, when our plans don't go as we intend them, and as we end this year and look back, on all the things that went wrong. May we let go of our mistakes and give thanks for the miracles that God makes. Amen.